Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. We greet you in the name of Christ, our Lord, who's the head of the church, and count it a joy to be with here, be here. I love your president. I love many people on staff and faculty here, um, and I won't name them because in Southern Baptist settings, uh, my white brothers are used to it, but they put you on the clock, and so I need to deal with the Bible while I'm on the clock. <laughs> and, uh, but I do want to say I love your president. Um, for many things. First thing I think, I, maybe, maybe the first thing I did in academic life is I recruited for Southern Seminary and I had a position, the Martin Luther King Fellowship, and I think it reported to someone and I was like, I don't want to report to them, I'd rather report to Dr. Aiken. And we like, we like moved a position over to his office and I was like, hey, this is neat, this is neat. And I just really love him, respect him, his preaching, uh, his family life. And, and he knows this. Um, we're a large denomination, and we have a lot of people with a lot of skills. And so I really love men who have loved their families and their adult children respect them. And so I love him, and he's in a certain kind of category. And I thank the Lord so much for him. And uh, he, is, he is steady. And the older you all get, you will appreciate steady people who understand a certain characteristic of loyalty and friendship. The Bible says a brother is born for adversity, and so I thank the Lord in so many ways for him. Revelation 5. Oh, my goodness. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture. Um... As you turn there, I want to tell you about one opportunity. I'm here with one of our worship pastors from Family Church, Brother Pastor Winter Ullman, and we'll be out in the lobby there. Uh, one of the things I love to serve seminary students, university students, is uh, the residency and the uh, internship opportunities at Family Church. We have a residency preview day coming up in April. And we would love to talk to you about that. Uh, as a state exec, I helped people pursue ministry opportunities. And one of the greatest struggles with students was loving certain disciplines or having certain ideas about ministry, but not having practical experience in those areas. And so residencies, internships allow you to actually be in a local church and serve in some very specific areas of ministry just to make sure, yeah, I like what revitalization is really about. Or, yeah, I like what church planning is really about. Or, yeah, I like what administrating a large church is really about. And so I invite you to meet, talk to us in the lobby. We'd love to talk to you about some opportunities in South Florida. And I feel really comfortable inviting you to do that on a day when it's like 35 degrees. Come minister in South Florida. Do a spring internship through the winter semester. Yes. 
I think um, we can be off sometimes. And when I'm in a seminary setting, I like to really let y'all know the kind of church world you're coming out into. I think we can be off sometimes. Many of you have heard people talk about the truncation of the faith and people not putting orthodoxy together with orthopraxy, what we believe with what we do. But I think likewise, our orthopraxy and our orthodoxy does not always lead to just doxology. Like American Bible-believing Christians and you can say evangelicals if you care about that word. I've been a Baptist. I was born a Baptist. I'm a die Baptist. I don't care about the word. But if you care about the word evangelical, Bible-believing Christians in the U.S. are not necessarily perceived to be worshipful, praise-oriented, doxological people. And yet the scripture declares that the Son of God is worthy of all praise. When I was a child, I would go to church with my grandmother in the morning at our traditional black Baptist church. And many evenings, I would go with my best friend, and his father pastored in the Church of God in Christ, which is a historic black Pentecostal denomination, the largest Pentecostal denomination. And my dear, sweet grandmother, she was a very lady, lady. If someone would say in the evening, where's Kevin? She said, oh, he's over there with those Jesus freaks. Because even to Baptists, they were perceived as being very much about worshiping Jesus and rejoicing in the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus in a way that even my Baptist grandmother thought was excessive. And so I want to suggest to you that you all are going out to minister in a church context where just the person and the work of Jesus is not like at the top of everyone's priority list, is not in the center of everyone's radar. And yet, Christ says that the law and the prophets and the Psalms testify of me. And yet, Paul says that the highest exaltation of God is the exaltation of his son. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise of God the Father. And I think that's more than just understanding the orthodoxy truth about Jesus. I think that's more than just believing the orthopraxy that I ought to obey Jesus' commands and love my neighbor and love God with everything I have. It involves a certain type of doxology where when you see Jesus, you're just overwhelmed by who he is and what he's done, and you spend a lot of time meditating upon him. 
I am pro-life. I'm a trustee for ERLC. Uh, we're doing a lot of initiatives leading up to next, next uh, January. Uh, you can check out Row 50 stuff on our um, website, led by a sister uh, that studied at Southeastern, Elizabeth Graham. Um, but in fighting the cultural, the culture of death, I need to make sure I don't wake up thinking about what irritates me in United States culture more than I wake up thinking about the glories of Christ. I need to make sure I don't, like, like they were called, my, my grandmother called those folk Jesus freaks. Nobody's calling us Jesus freaks. They might call us culture warriors. They might call us mean folk. They might call us politically expedient compromisers. They might call us a whole lot of things, but I don't see a lot of people calling us Jesus freaks. And yet, when God pulls back the curtain and exposes the culmination of worship, that is the culmination of time, space, that is the culmination of everything that is above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth, that is the culmination of all creation, the centerpiece of it is the praise and the worship of his son. When I was a child, we used to sing, when we all get to heaven. If we live with a mentality towards we are pilgrims and sojourners heading towards the glorification of God, the immortal putting on immortality, the corruptible putting on incorruptible, incorruptibility, then we must constantly have the glory of Jesus Christ before us. And it is obvious that many of us don't live with the glory of Jesus Christ before us. I mean, we can be middle class, upper class, whatever class, and depressed, discouraged, not where we want to be in American, whatever, whatever. And, and I had a poor great-grandmother who drove a cab in Washington, D.C., and lived in an income-based kind of apartment unit. And she was one of the joy, most joyful people I knew because, like, Christ was the center of her meditation. There's no way we can read the scripture, especially the prophetic culmination and revelation, and not realize we must have a faith where Christ is the center. Yes, that will manifest itself in a Christian worldview, but the Christian worldview and all that entails, and we do like lap a lot, you know, we, 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 we throw a lot of other crap in there, call it the Christian worldview, but whatever that is, that's not the center. I'm a historic Baptist. I can tell you why I'm Baptist. I can tell you why it's better than folk that's not Baptist. But, uh, but that, that can't be like the center and the anchor. The center and the anchor must be the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and we must constantly meditate upon him, and we must constantly have those Peter encounters on a daily and a regular basis, like in Luke 5, 5, when Jesus says, throw out your nets that you might catch some more, and Peter says, I don't understand why you're saying that, but nevertheless, at your word, I will do what you said. And when Jesus' glory is manifested in Peter's obedience, the Bible says Peter nailed down and said, ooh, I'm not worthy of you. I'm sinful. 
That's what being in the doxological presence of Jesus does for you. I don't know everything about nasty, mean evangelicals, but I do know one thing. They're not waking up in the morning kneeling down to Jesus. Because you can't be in his presence and be arrogant and nasty. He breaks you. I got to pay attention to the clock. (laughs) Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to Look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In this drama, that is opening up as the revelation of Jesus Christ comes to John and the Isle of Patmos. And I have to say the revelation of Jesus Christ. My late pastor had a thing because in the black church tradition, there was this rhetoric of John the revelator. And my late pastor, he was precise. He was like, John was not the revelator. The revelator is Jesus Christ. It's his revelation. And the the picture is painted of a great need that no one is able to meet. Last week, Dr. Aiken's son took you all to the throne of God in chapter 4 and God is sitting on the throne and so in chapter 5 the picture continues with God on the throne with a scroll in his right hand sealed with seven seals and no one is able to take the throne the, the scroll from his hand or approach the throne and open the seals no one I mean, look, 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 look at verse 3. No one in heaven or no one on the earth or no one under the earth. There's been an exhaustive examination, and no one is able to do what needs to be done. So if there's anything about the church world that you all are going, out in, going into, look at this sentence with me. You have that sentence there? In a world of overused superlatives and excessive affirmation, we must declare the unique worthiness of Jesus Christ. And we've got to hunt for some vocabulary that we kind of reserve for Christ. I 
I didn't realize how many people, I've spent most of my pastorate, most of my life in Kentucky, and Bowling Green, Kentucky is there. They make Corvettes there. I didn't realize how many people in South Florida drive Corvettes. It's a popular car. I didn't really know that. But if a souped-up, top-of-the-line Corvette is awesome, I got to find another word for Jesus. If my grandma's apple pie is great, I got to find another word for Jesus. We're going out into a church world that does not ascribe a unique, singular worthiness to Jesus Christ. And the scene that God sets up, the worship service that God lays out, ascribes a singular worthiness to his son. And if we are ministers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be our task to ascribe a singular worthiness to the son of the living God. We're in a world of overused superlatives. You know, I get sick. Uh, who's the greatest, LeBron or Michael Jordan? I, I, who's the greatest discussions make me sick in a sport that, has, that is decades old and it's had different seasons and different style games? And all. We, we run for like the superlative. I consult churches. I mean, every church can't have the greatest staff. Oh, man, I just love working here. I'm with the greatest staff. No, you not. Y'all plateaued and declining. You ain't with the greatest staff. I mean, your dude can play music in two keys. You ain't with the greatest staff. We, we just use the over, we, we just overuse superlatives. They're in this excessive affirmation culture. We congratulate people for doing what they ought to do. Oh, this is an awesome brother. He has a house and he provides for his family to live and they're not hungry on the street. Oh, he's so awesome. That's regular life. So in, in a culture where everything is the greatest, in a culture where everything has to be affirmed, we struggle sometimes to ascribe unique worthiness to the Son of the living God. He alone is in a category all by himself. Verse 3 says, out of an exhaustive examination of all of creation, no one is able to do what Jesus Christ will come on the scene and do. Have your angle, have your personality, have your niche. But let your main program be the exaltation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and his extreme, unique worthiness. I mean, there was a season when I was doing a lot of youth retreats and youth camps, and you do all that stuff before you get gray and your hair start getting thin and then those invitations kind of dry up. 
Then they were doing a season of men's conferences and stuff at Ridgecrest and then stuff at Life. You know, there's seasons of what you're doing in ministry, but whatever you're doing, what your niche is, whether you pastor in the rural or pastor in the city and you have the urban dynamic or the university dynamic, whatever your context, wherever you are, if you're in Southeast Asia, let the priority be the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and declaring to men and women, boys and girls, he is worthy and there is none like him. That must be our declaration. So there's a need set up, and this is set up real dramatically. The throne of God is presented in the fourth chapter, and then in the fifth chapter, no one is able to approach God and execute his will. And your next speaker will talk to you about the seven seals. And I'll let them do that. But I could really tell you what it is because as a child, my first real reading of the scriptures was in a Schofield study Bible. So I know exactly what it is. <laughs> Listen to the bottom of uh, the first five that I read. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. No one is able. And now the lamb that has been slain is declared to be able to take the scroll. So Jesus Christ is uniquely able to execute the will of God. He is distinctly worthy to execute the will of God. There were wonderful leaders in the Old Testament, but they were not able to execute the will of God because of their imperfections and their coming short of the glory of God. There was an established Levitical priesthood, but they were not able to execute. There were prophets, but they were not able to fully execute. They would get discouraged like Jonah. They would have other sinful things or fearful things or faithless things. And then, of course, there was a whole cadre of false prophets. They were priests, but the priests were sinful, Eli's sons and folk like that. So every person of spiritual leadership who was assigned to execute the will of God in the Old Testament, many of them with faithful and good and God-word attention still sinned and came short of the glory of God. And yet the Bible says that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, is able, was able, and shall be able to totally fulfill and execute the will of his Father. He's distinctly worthy to execute the will of God. And we're not even surprised by this. We're not even surprised by this. 
all this is like, yep, 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 that's what's supposed to happen. Because at the baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, during his earthly ministry, his father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, once the father says he's well pleased, you know the will of God is going to be executed. He's distinctly worthy to execute the will of God. If I'm not yet apprehended, if I'm somewhere in the vortex of Romans 7, the things I want to do, I find myself not doing. The things I don't want to do, I find myself not doing, uh, doing. I feel like there's a war going. And if I'm somewhere in that vortex, then I need to cling closely to the one who is able to execute the will of God. That's why gospel preachers don't preach moralism, because we know moralism falls short. David was doxological. There aren't many praise leaders like David. And he fell short. Moses was courageous, went in before Pharaoh. God said, let his people go, and he fell short. Joshua was bold. All human leaders have fallen short. All of us fall short of God's glory, so it behooves us to cling close to the one who is able to execute the will of God. And by his grace, he fills us with his spirit. By his grace, after the day of Pentecost, we become partakers of the divine nature. By his grace, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is him, God, who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But in order to receive that grace, we've got to cling close to him. Not a merely intellectual faith, not a merely cognitive faith, not a merely precept faith, but a clinging to the Son of the living God, the one who in all heaven and earth is singularly worthy to execute the will of God. In the last section is going to be these overlapping praises that stem out from the throne of God. The elders and the beasts, and then the elders and the beasts and the host of uh, angels, multitude of angels, and then the elders and the beasts and the multitude of angels, and then all of creation. Like, nothing gets me like the last verse. I should say last because it's in our modern hymnals. Some of those hymnals have more verses than we really know about. Nothing gets me like the verse we sing, holy, holy, holy. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Oh, that's a verse right there.
And as a pastor, you know, now we're a little more contemporary, so we come up in all those kind of things. Growing up in the historic black church, you know, you had the pulpit chairs and everything. And as a pastor, you're watching God's people worship. And when I was young, it used to amaze me how that line just did not move people. I was like, do y'all hear what y'all are singing? And I grew up in a tradition where your stuff is jacked up, the pastor corrects you. <clears throat> like, y'all, we just said, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. And y'all were just sitting here like daydreaming, like y'all just singing some words. Uh, let's do that hymn again. <laughs> then he go... <laughs> He thought pastors should teach people how to worship. Do you hear those words? All of creation. So let's look at these layers. He says in verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then he looked, and he saw the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and then men and the angels and a myriad and myriad of thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, uh, in heaven the worship ain't Presbyterian Episcopalian style. It's loud. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then it expands out more in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Yeah, sometimes non-Pentecostals mock Pentecostals, but there's some physicality to praising the Lord sometimes. There's some exuberance to praising the Lord sometimes. And when I was little, some people would talk about their personality, but that's a bunch of baloney. Because they don't have a quiet personality during the NFL wild card weekends. They don't have a quiet personality during the college football playoffs. And they don't, have a college per they don't have a quiet personality when it comes down to Biden and Trump. And they don't have a quiet personality when it goes anything except, oh, yeah, I'm in church, so now I'm supposed to have a quiet personality. Does the worthiness of the Lamb move us. Yeah. 
It is the will of God that we exalt his son. Remember that Philippians passage. And he shall bow, confess to Jesus, Lord, to the praise of God the Father. It is the will. And then when God lays out the, when, when, when God lays out the planning center, when God lays out the order of worship, he expands it out from the angels and the elders to all the angels to all of creation, declaring the worthiness of his son. I'm not trying to be the thought police or the speech police, but maybe, maybe worthy is one of those words we can just hold back for Jesus. I mean, since everything is awesome, since everything is great, maybe worthy is one of those words we can hold back. Maybe holy is one of those words we can hold back. But certainly we see here in the text that worthy in the unique declaration of his majesty is one of the songs and the themes of heaven that we shall rejoice in forever and ever. And so I don't know all the songs that we're going to sing, but we're going to certainly sing worthy is the lamb. Revelation 5. Following the awesomeness of the throne of God lays out for us the awesomeness and the unique worthiness of his son. Let me take my last few minutes and make sure you see how consistent God is in his thematic emphases. The lamb appears as a lamb that was slain. The lyrics of the hymn in verse, tw in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. In verse 9, worthy is the lamb for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom a people of every tribe and language and people and nation. Just a little minor parenthetical thought. Like when people trip out about kingdom diversity initiative and some of the things of Southeastern and the desire to have kindred tribe, tongue, and nation, I mean, you know, that's like an automatic, like, I ain't been reading the Bible lately. <laughs> oh, you got that from some woke people, or you got that from the university, or you got that from, that, 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 that's, that, that's like, uh, I ain't been reading the Bible lately. The worthy lamb has done exhaustive work that affects all of humanity and all types of people. And Ephesians says part of, and Galatians, part of his manifested glory is just the prism of people that say Jesus is Lord and he is worthy. But in the last 45 seconds, don't miss the picture. The father in chapter 4 sits on the throne in majestic glory. But in chapter 5, in visual and in declaration, we'll always remember Cal. The, 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 the black church tradition ain't perfect, but I'm thankful for a lot of things in it. I was a young preacher, and I used to 
preach sometimes, and I would send a, back then, I'd send a cassette tape to one of my cousins, an older cousin in Newport News, Virginia. She was like an aunt. Matter of fact, most time when I ride down here on my motorcycle, I'm coming from her house in Newport News. I say, hey, Cousin Elaine, did you hear that sermon I preached? What did you think about my sermon? And she said, oh, it was nice. Uh, oh, you, you just didn't finish it. I'm like, what? I mean, I'm studying in school. I'm studying exposition. I'm studying exegesis. I mean, I explained what that text meant. She said, oh, yeah, you did a good job. She said, you just didn't finish it. I said, what do you mean? She said, you didn't take them by Calvary. And in her world, in her old church woman, never been to seminary world, it was not hermeneutically and homiletically acceptable to preach a sermon in a Christian church, call it Christian, and not take the folk by Calvary. Evidently, evidently, God has the same kind of hermeneutic, doxological display mindset. Because when we get to glory, when the corruptible has put on incorruption, when the mortal has put on immortality, when we're walking around in robes with slippers and we're looking all good and the fatty cat and we're just chilling and looking clean, the lamb will still look slain and we'll be reminded of Calvary for all eternity. What a picture! In glory! Singing about redemption in glory, remembering that our sins had to be forgiven. In glory, remembering there's a fountain filled with blood. Brothers and sisters, I'm so happy y'all are here. But you're going out into a church world where you're going to have to put work and effort into declaring and demonstrating and modeling that we want orthopraxy and we want orthodoxy. But all that must sit upon a doxology that is rooted in the singular uniqueness and worthiness of Jesus Christ. And at any moment, whether in worship like Revelation 5 or whether in conviction in Luke 5, we will bow and say, Thou art worthy, for you have redeemed sinners like me. That's the picture that God paints of the unique worthiness of his son. Let's pray together. Father, whether the mission field of IMB, whether the local pastorate, the academic ministry, however you lead the men and women in this place, the men and women in this institution, may they joy and be strengthened by the unique worthiness of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, 
visit scbts.edu.